Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. The CDC lists September as Gynecologic Awareness Month and references the Foundation for Women's Cancer and their efforts this month in the realm of gynecologic cancer awareness. And so to do our part, this month, Amplify is focusing on women's reproductive health and the article that appeared in Emergency Medicine Practice in August on abnormal uterine bleeding. In a few moments, we'll be speaking with both of the authors of that article. But before we begin, I also want to let you know that this month, your EB Medicine subscription will also give you access to a special topics article being published on maternal postpartum hemorrhage and hypertensive emergencies. That is actually authored by yours truly and should be in your mailbox later this month. Also, if you take advantage of the special offer this month using the code SB25, you will get a free $25 Starbucks gift card on us. And lastly, you've heard us talk all summer long about the EB Medicine mobile app, and it is almost here. The volumes of information that you have access to at ebmedicine.net will soon be at your fingertips, ready to use at the bedside and reference whenever you need. So keep an eye out on your email for that announcement coming later this month. And now on to our featured interview with Dr. Tazine Abbas and Dr. Abbas Hussein on abnormal uterine bleeding and management of it in the emergency department. Hi, my name is Tazina Bas. I'm a PGY3. I'm a currently one of the chief residents at Staten Island University Hospital uh, Emergency Medicine Program. Um, and this past year, I had the opportunity um, to kind of learn more about abnormal uterine bleeding, which is something I needed to learn more about. So I'm excited to talk about it today. Wonderful. Thank you. And Dr. Hussain? Hi, uh, this is Abbas Hussein. I'm the Associate Program Director in Emergency Medicine at Staten Island University Hospital. And I uh, had the uh, approach to work on this uh, project. Uh, it's been uh, a great article that sums up kind of what we know uh, about abnormal uterine bleeding in the non-pregnant patient. Uh, we should hopefully uh, take a look at it. It'll give you an idea of where we are and uh, some of the current updates in our practice. Fantastic. Thank you so much again. Let's start with the beginning of the article, which focuses on just a quick summary of the physiology for what we're going to be talking about, uh, which I found very helpful. So what is it as an emergency physician that we should keep in mind as just the, the physiology basis for what we're about to be talking about? Yep. So I guess we should kind of go back to medical school when we first learn about the normal menstrual cycle. Um, so as we know, on average, the menstrual cycle is about 28 days between each menstrual period. Um, so usually, you know, outside of that, uh, bleeding is considered abnormal. So there's two main parts. Uh, there's the follicular phase, which is the first half of the menstrual cycle, where you see that gradual rise in estrogen. And that's followed by um, ovulation at about day 14. And that marks the beginning of the luteal phase. Um, so the ovum is what contains the corpus luteum, which produces progesterone during the luteal phase. 
And if you don't have fertilization that occurs, um, both progesterone and estrogen will start to gradually decline and then the endometrial lining will um, slough off and that's when you start to see um, menses. Um, so the average duration for most women, um, menstruation is four to seven days and average blood loss is about 35 milliliters. Um, and they say about uh, blood loss over 80 milliliters is usually considered abnormal. Great. And when we're talking about abnormal uterine bleeding, there is a group of terms that we've used historically, some we don't really use anymore. Where are we in the classification of terminology for, for all things abnormal for uterine bleeding? Yes. So uh, there used to be, we would have menorrhagia, um, menorrhagia, oligomenorrhea, so many different terms um, that would we would use and they would kind of get confusing. There's a lot of overlap. Um, so the um, International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, or FIGO, uh, they recently, in 2011, they came out um, with a palm coin classification system to kind of standardize uh, the nomenclature used to describe the etiology and severity of abnormal uterine bleeding in non-pregnant patients of reproductive age. So what they did is they divided it into palm and coin. So palm stands for the structural causes of bleeding. So P is for polyp, A is for adenomyosis, L is leiomyoma or fibroids, M is malignancy or hyperplasia. And then they also divided it into the second part, which is coin. So C stands for, so these are more non-structural causes. Uh, so C is coagulopathy, O is ovulatory dysfunction, E is endometrial causes and I is iatrogenic. And the last one is N is not otherwise specified. So that's palm, P-A-L-M hyphen coin spelled C-O-E-I-N. And I find this actually to be a very helpful differentiator, the, the structural versus the non-structural causes. Were there any other causes that we should be aware of that might not be included in these categories? Yeah, so the other things that you would think about is trauma. That's not really in the uh, nomenclature. Uh, so trauma and um, also things like, you know, foreign bodies, um, things like that, um, because this nomenclature is actually more focused on women of reproductive age. So it doesn't really include uh, prepubescent females or postmenopausal. And then... In the article, there was actually a second classification system for differential diagnosis. So when we get a patient in the emergency department who has abnormal uterine bleeding, their age could actually help differentiate some of the underlying causes. How does that work? Yes. So we kind of divide it into three different age groups. So prepubescent, um, reproductive age, and postmenopausal. So the first group, um, this is a good way of thinking about the differential. So, you know, ages 12 to 18, it's the most common um, cause is immaturity of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. Uh, so that's the most common cause in this age group, as well as um, sexually transmitted infections, coagulopathy, and bleeding disorders. Uh, so there was one study that showed 20% of abnormal bleeding in adolescence was due to an underlying bleeding disorder, um, the most common being one uh, Villebrand disease. I was surprised by that, actually. I didn't realize it was that high. Uh, so 20% is, you know, like one in five females who present to the emergency department with abnormal uterine bleeding in this age group, the 12 to 18 age group. 
might actually have uh, von Willebrands as an underlying cause. That's that's quite high and something I'm not accustomed to just screening for in the emergency department. So this was very helpful. What about the uh, the second group then? This was 19 to 39 years old? Yeah, so the second group is um, like the reproductive age group. And in this group, it's most often due to structural causes. So polyps, fibroids, malignancy, um, so, for example, endometrial polyps, um, it increases with age and has a prevalence of about 8 to 35%. Uh, most polyps are asymptomatic, um, but they can present, you know, as intermenstrual uh, bleeding or heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, so, like I mentioned, 95% of polyps are benign, but 5% that are symptomatic that we might see in the ET, uh, they can develop into malignancy. So that's important to keep in mind. Another uh, structural cause in this um, group that's common is adenomyosis. So that's the presence of endometrial tissue in the myometrium, uh, which can present as painful, heavy, prolonged menstrual bleeding. And there's also fibroids um, or leiomyomas, which is a common cause. Um, they're pretty much benign myometrial tumors. Um, they can also be symptomatic. Um, and then last thing to consider in this age group is that we often think of malignancy um, to be found in postmenopausal women. However, one-fourth of cases of endometrial cancer uh, occur in women less than 55 years of age. Mm, that's terrible. But yes, very, very important to keep in mind. Thank you for that reminder. That's a, that's a alarming statistic. And then the last group was the women age 40 and older. Yes. Uh, so this last group, uh, we tend to think of them more postmenopausal. As women approach menopause, um, you have anovulatory cycles, and then you start to get ovarian function, uh, which begins to decline. Um, so in this age group, the most common cause of abnormal uterine bleeding is due to endometrial atrophy. Um but the thing that we want, we're worried the most about in the ER is having a high suspicion for cancer in this age group. Um, so any woman in this age group who presents with vaginal bleeding, staining, or spotting needs to be evaluated to rule out malignancy. So that's really two helpful classification schemes there, the age-based differential or the palm coin system, which is very nicely uh, pictorially seen in figure two on the article. So if you have access to that, that's page four, a little handy image there that you can clip or uh, have ready for you at the bedside for reference. That's very, very helpful. In the emergency department, so after the patient presents and now we're obtaining a history from the patient, what kind of helpful elements are we looking to elicit that might help us figure out what's going on as a cause for their abnormal uterine bleeding? Yeah, so in addition to just general medical, surgical, gynecological history, we really want to focus in on the details of the current bleeding pattern. Um, so you want to ask them the onset, duration, the pattern of bleeding, ask them about their menstrual history. Is this bleeding, is this heavy menstrual bleeding? Is it occurring during their cycle or is it occurring um, between menstrual cycles? Because those small details can actually help differentiate between the diagnosis. Um, you want to ask about any family history of any sort of cancer, family history of fibroids. You want to get a really good uh, sexual history, reproductive history. Um, ask them if they use any sort of contraceptives or so hormonal oral contraceptives. If they have like an IUD device. Um, any family history of coagulation disorders. 
those can really help um, to get to the diagnosis. So other things you want to ask about is, you know, fever, trauma, abdominal pain. You want to ask about any sort of skin bruising or gum bleeding that you might have, um, they might have noticed, any vaginal order, odor, discharge. And then you want to also quantify the bleeding. So asking them how many pads have they been going through over the past hour or in 24 hours, that can really help um, quantify and get a better idea of this current bleeding episode. Do we know the correlation between, say, number of pads and amount of blood loss? Is there a, a rough estimate there, or how does that quantification help? What do we what do we consider normal or abnormal in that kind of scenario? Uh, so, you know, volume of blood is uh, uh, similar to volume of fluid. So, about a a cup, you know, is about two hundred fifty mLs. OBs like to use uh, one pad an hour uh, as a way to measure a heavy bleeding. So heavier than one pad an hour in their mind is considered heavy bleeding. Perfect. So gynecological history, sexual history, family history, especially focused on coagulopathies, and then their uh, history of their own menses and what kind of bleeding they're having and quantifying that bleeding, all those part of the history trying to get from the patient when we first encounter them. And then we move on to the physical exam. Other than vital signs, what kind of things are we looking for here? Apart from the vital signs, um, you want to start obviously externally. So abdominal exam, you know, if any abdominal or pelvic tenderness might be suggestive of pelvic inflammatory disease. Obviously, we always, no matter what, want to do a pelvic exam on patients who are complaining of bleeding. And it's important to have a chaperone. Uh, the chaperone should be the same, the gender uh, that the patient feels most comfortable with. So that's something to always remember to have in the room. But when it comes to the actual exam, you start by visualizing the external uh, genitalia, look at the perineum, the labia, look for any signs of trauma, lesions, lacerations. The uh, speculum exam that could help you visualize the source of the bleeding if you see a lesion on the cervix or a laceration in the vaginal vault. You could also look at the presence of fresh or old blood and look for any signs of active bleeding or clots. And then you also want to do a bimanual exam. And the bimanual exam is helpful here because if you can palpate the contour, the size of the uterus, um, if you feel something more lobular, it might suggest like a fibroid or adenomyosis. The patient has adnexal tenderness that may be more suggestive towards PID. So now we've completed our history and physical exam and we turn to diagnostics. And before we look at imaging, typically we're looking to obtain either some blood work or urine testing. What do you think would guide us in that realm for, say, the, the starting point of laboratory testing? Yeah, so I would say the first test you want to do is a pregnancy test. So any woman younger than 55 who presents with vaginal bleeding, whether or not she reports recent menstrual cycle or deny sexual activity, you always want to get a pregnancy test. And in these patients, you know, if you can't do a urine uh, point of care pregnancy test, one helpful option is just doing like a serum bedside uh, pregnancy test using whole blood. So you can just like prick their finger and use the bedside pregnancy test for that. And there's studies that showed that 
um, using whole blood instead of urine actually saves 21 minutes uh, compared to using urine. And there's a 99.6% concordance between results. So number one, I would definitely get that pregnancy test. That's actually a very helpful tidbit if you have any kind of delayed length of stay in your emergency department. Collecting urines can sometimes be a, uh, a lengthy process, especially when you're waiting for a patient to void and not performing catheterization on all of them. So using a serum sample can really make a huge difference. So that's an excellent little point there. What about uh, blood work? So CBC, I would go on all women who are presenting with significant vaginal bleeding or other words, they're reporting they're changing more than one pad per hour or they have any sort of hemo, they're hemodynamically unstable or symptomatic. So you want to get that CBC to evaluate their hemoglobin. It's also important to remember that if a patient's coming in for an acute bleeding episode, their hemoglobin might not show that drop until that patient is adequately resuscitated. So um, that's something to keep in mind. If the patient is unstable or you are anticipating they might need a blood transfusion, I would just send the type and screen right away. Then that's actually a, also an important point is the, uh, the lack of a low hemoglobin in someone who is hemodynamically unstable. Uh, that's an important differentiator and something to keep in mind, though we're talking about the non-pregnant patient here. We often see people with things like ruptured ectopic pregnancies, sudden blood loss who don't have anemia, and that's usually something that presents itself late in the stage after you've resuscitated somebody and had some dilution. So if they have a normal hemoglobin, that does not exclude severe blood loss. That's a very important dif differentiator. Now, when we're deciding when to get coagulation studies on a patient, is there anything there that can guide us for who needs coags and who doesn't? Coagulation studies are not routinely indicated. Uh, we would consider getting them if you're suspecting an underlying bleeding disorder. So maybe on the exam, the patient's having bleeding gums or you see signs of bruising or they're complaining of prolonged heavy menstruation. You can also look at their medications they're taking. Uh, so if the patient is on anticoagulants, um, then I would, depending on which medication, you would want to send the coagulation studies. Good. And lastly, uh, screening for sexually transmitted infections. Is this something routine we should be doing on everyone or just if there's a historical uh, piece of information that perhaps suggests that as part of the differential? So we would just suggest getting chlamydia gonorrhea um, on a patient, you know, either based on their history or physical exam, where you're suspecting public inflammatory disease, cervicitis, or um, something actually related to it, but not necessarily routinely. And then last in the diagnostic studies is imaging. So we're looking primarily at ultrasound in this scenario. What kinds of things are we looking for and what should guide when we should be ordering that test? Yes, so transvaginal ultrasound, it is the first line imaging approach for stable patients who come in for abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, and it's very useful. It can help differentiate between structural and non-structural causes. You know, in the article, we have several images where you can see polyps, adenomyosis, fibroid, a retained uh, product or IUD device, and they can all um, be seen on transvaginal ultrasound. However, it's not routinely recommended um, in a stable patient, because usually the ultrasound can actually wait until the patient follows up outpatient. So in a stable patient that's not 
uh, we actually don't recommend getting a transvaginal ultrasound on every patient. Yeah, I think that's similar to my common practice as well. You know, every now and then I'll make an exception if I have someone who doesn't have access to outpatient resources, uh, doesn't have access to outpatient gynecology. Uh, and in those kinds of settings, sometimes we will make those exceptions if we're able to. I did find the images actually to be very helpful. Nowadays, many of us are performing our own ultrasonography in the emergency department. Did you happen to find any data about emergency physician performed ultrasounds for this diagnosis? So I currently uh, was not able to find any data on it, but I know um, even in our program, we're uh, we're trained on how to do like bedside transvaginal ultrasound. So I can see that, you know, if more and more emergency clinicians are trained in ultrasound, if you can do a quick bedside ultrasound that can uh, probably be pretty cost effective and expedite care. And then what about the prepubertal or the sexually naive patient who's uncomfortable with the transvaginal ultrasound? Is uh, transabdominal imaging acceptable or helpful in that scenario? Yes. Yeah, so for uh, prepubescent patients and virginal patients, they recommend doing a transabdominal instead of transvaginal. So now we've got our pregnancy test, which hopefully has come back negative. And then we've got our screening CBC. If there is something to suggest a coagulopathy, then we've sent off those tests as well. And if there's something to suggest infection, then we've screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And we've obtained our pelvic ultrasound, perhaps based on, again, the history and the physical. Let's move to treatment. So... I like differentiating the treatment as you did in the article for the stable versus the unstable patient. So we'll start with the unstable patient. That's a little bit more straightforward, actually, with the unstable patient beginning resuscitation, IV fluids. But what do we have beyond just simple resuscitation? Yeah. So you you do your resuscitation, you get your blood products ready to go um, if the patient's actively hemorrhaging. Um, and then if you, you want to do that physical exam, and if you do believe it is a uterine source of bleeding and they are actively hemorrhaging, it's severe life-threatening bleeding, the recommendation is to use high-dose IV conjugated estrogen, uh, also known as Premarin. Um, that's the first-line treatment, and it is uh, FDA-approved for severe life-threatening bleeding due to dysfunctional uterine bleeding. So the dose for that is 25 milligrams IV every four hours for up to 24 hours until the bleeding stops. And then are there any mechanical or bedside procedures that can be performed for, say, vaginal or uterine heavy bleeding that's causing a patient to be unstable? Yeah. So um, you know, if the patient has contraindications to the IV estrogen or they're refractory to that, then you can consider um, vaginal packing. So pretty much if you believe the bleeding is coming from the vaginal uh, vault, you can get um, some vaginal packing. It's preferred to get like a continuous gauze instead of individual gauze pieces. So it's easier to remove and you can actually just pack the vaginal vault, and you can keep it in there until uh, for up to 24 hours. Another option is something called the Bacri balloon, um, which is specifically made um, to control postpartum hemorrhage, but can also be used to control profuse bleeding in non-pregnant patients. 
Only thing with this is it's not always readily available in the ED. It's more something you would find upstairs in the floors on OBGYN floors. Um, so if you don't have that available, you can actually use a Foley catheter with a 30 ml balloon. Um, it can be inserted the same way. So you insert it through the cervix and you inflate it with saline until you feel resistance of the myometrium. You can also use ultrasound to help you with that um, to confirm that it's in the proper position, but um, pretty much serves as like a uterine tamponade device. And that can also be left up to 24 hours. So for the, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar, the Bakri balloon is a essentially a very large Foley catheter, the, the balloon part being that you know, three or four times larger than a traditional Foley. Uh, and even the Foley catheter that we mentioned in our article, uh, is it's not the regular Foley catheter you have in the emergency department. It's the one that has a 30cc balloon. So you may have to get that from the uh, um, uh, your surgical colleagues or urological colleagues if that's available. Yeah, and if you're in a resource-limited area listening to this podcast, there is actually good evidence that the use of a standard Foley with a condom tied onto the tip of it can be used as a kind of uh, a makeshift Bakri balloon uh, in, a, in an area where you don't have those resources. But these are all just temporizing measures, right? So if I'm packing a vaginal vault or inserting a balloon tamponade device, it's understood that... I've got the GYN coming in to help manage this unstable patient and perhaps consider something surgical if the balloon tamponade or vaginal packing isn't working. Is that right? Yes, correct. So these are all things you would do um, until the patient can get that definitive um, care. So that's the treatment for the unstable patient. Now, more frequently, we're seeing stable patients with a complaint of abnormal uterine bleeding. What are our treatment options in this population? So there are several treatment options um, that are available, including uh, oral contraceptive pills, progestin therapy. Uh, there's a Monera or the Levonorgestrel releasing intrauterine system device. There's non-hormonal therapies as well, NSAIDs, um, antifibrinolytics or a TXA, iron. Um, so we usually base the uh, therapy that we choose based off of what we're suspecting to be the underlying cause. So hormonal therapies are more likely to be useful when you're suspecting anovulatory bleeding, and then non-hormonal therapies um, can often benefit when women uh, have other sources of bleeding. The hormonal therapies come in multiple varieties as well. We're talking about the typical combination oral contraceptive pills in this scenario? Yeah. So... Combination of oral contraceptive pills have been used uh, for a long time for abnormal uterine bleeding. Uh, they contain both estrogen and progestin, uh, which are widely available for patients who have moderate bleeding. Uh, so the estrogen part um, works by preventing the FSH secretion and development of the dominant follicle, and it also promotes endometrial stability. And then the progestin component prevents uh, luteinizing hormone surge and ovulation and creates atrophic endometrial lining and reducing blood loss. And if the patient is either going to start this new or, or is already on oral contraceptive therapy, are we placing them on, a, on some kind of tapering dose or just asking them to take it daily for a while and in hopes that the, um, the bleeding will, will slow? So there are different recommendations on the taper, but ACOG currently recommends uh, doing 
the OCP three times a day for seven days and then giving a tapering dose uh, once daily for three weeks. Great. Now, there are other options that are mentioned in the article. Some of these uh, are used by some of our GYN colleagues, things like uh, oral tranexamic acid, um, NSAIDs, progestins. Uh, is there any role for any of these medications in the emergency department? So yes, there is a role for these. Um, NSAIDs have also been widely used uh, for treatment of abnormal uterine bleeding. The way NSAIDs work, they inhibit cyclooxygenase and they suppress prostaglandin synthesis. Um, so NSAIDs are often used by our OBGYN colleagues for women who have heavy menstrual bleeding cycles. And there are studies that support uh, the use of NSAIDs. So uh, the dose for this would be 500 milligrams once and then 250 uh, milligrams uh, PO three times a day for five days. And that's naproxen dosing? Yes. Uh, but there you can use ibuprofen as well? Yep. And that would be 200 to 400 milligrams uh, three times a day for five days. Fantastic. Now, sometimes this takes a little extra coaching with patients because they're accustomed to conflating NSAIDs with platelet inhibitors and aspirin therapy, and it may seem contradictory to them that they're having a bleeding problem and we're recommending NSAIDs, but explaining the pathway why this is helpful uh, and that it's commonly used by gynecologists hopefully will help clear up some of that confusion. What about uh, TXA? Any role in that in the emergency department? Yeah, so the way that TXA works, it competitively blocks plasminogen binding sites. Um, it prevents plasma formation, fibrin, and clot degradation. Uh, so TXA is actually FDA approved for the treatment of ovulatory abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, so there have been studies that have showed uh, this to be effective in um, using it for uh, abnormal uterine bleeding. And so if they have uh, insurance coverage that will actually pay for the medication, then this is a viable option for them to use instead of something like NSAIDs or progestin therapy? Uh, that's an interesting point regarding TXA. Uh, so TXA is actually uh, quite affordable. Uh, and in uh, uh, some countries around where our listeners may be listening, especially in Europe, uh, it's actually available over the counter. Excellent. It's good to have that in our armamentarium. So... Uh, when it comes to transfusion of a stable patient with abnormal uterine bleeding, what is the recommendation for when we should be considering giving someone packed red blood cells? So currently, uh, the American Association of Blood Banks, uh, they did a randomized controls, they did a review of 31 randomized controls uh, trials about giving liberal and conservative uh, thresholds for transfusion, transfusing based off hemoglobin levels. So uh, what it found was that um, the pretty much the, what the committee recommended was using a restrictive hemoglobin transfusion threshold of about seven uh, for hospitalized patients who are hemodynamically stable to give blood unless they have some sort of underlying cardiovascular disease, which the threshold would be eight. So if you have a patient who is hemodynamically stable and their hemoglobin is less than seven, then uh, the recommendation is to transfuse. Gotcha. And then there was a mention in the article of the newer levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system. Is that something we can use in the emergency department or there's a recommendation for use in the ED setting? 
So currently there is no um, ED guidelines for that we know of uh, for recommendation for this. However, there is a lot of um, new evidence showing that this is this compared to TXA and says all some of the other therapies that are available, this provides improved um, satisfaction, quality of life, and is more cost effective. So although we don't typically uh, we can't really place this in the ED. This is something that if a patient has close gynecological follow-up, we would recommend them um, to see if they can have their gynecologist place this or see if they're an appropriate candidate for this device. Is this device similar to the typical intrauterine devices we've seen from other manufacturers? It's just one that releases levonorgestrel? Yes, it is pretty similar in structure. And then uh, also exceedingly useful in the article at the very end was a discussion of some special populations. We are encountering more and more patients who are taking direct oral anticoagulants. And in that scenario, we're now seem to be caught between a rock and a hard place as we're trying to treat abnormal bleeding in the presence of someone who's anticoagulated. What kind of recommendations are there for this population? Yes, so this population, they are seeing that patients who are on these direct oral anticoagulants do have a higher incidence of abnormal uterine bleeding. There was one study of 104 patients that actually found approximately two-thirds of women's experienced abnormal uterine bleeding after initiation of anticoagulation therapy. However, the good news is that there have been some large trials that have shown a very almost no incidence of any major uh, severe uterine bleeding in uh, patients taking direct anticoagulants. Great. So we don't have to worry so much about discontinuing this medication necessarily in someone who is having this presentation because it has been studied, or at least in the studies we have, it's not been shown to be a direct contributor. Correct. And then another one of these special populations was prepubescent girls. What kind of uh, changes in our protocols would we make in this scenario? Yeah, so uh, we have to remember that their anatomy is a little bit different than um, the adult female anatomy. So when we are examining, um, there are some techniques we can use. Um, one is obviously, you know, they're going to be, they're in the ER, they're going to be frightened. So most of the time we can actually examine the patient while they're in their parent's lap or they're um, being held by their parent. And you can also use this knee chest position uh, where you, place the patient's knee close to their chest, and then you examine uh, with the downward and lateral traction of the vulva to help best visualize on the anatomy. And uh, for these patients, you obviously want to avoid a speculum examination as it can be traumatizing. It should be avoided unless it's absolutely necessary. And at that point, that's when you might need to consider um, speculum evaluation under conscious sedation or even under general anesthesia. And then really in the prepubescent population, when we think about genital injuries and then accidental versus intentional injuries, it's important to try and make that differentiation as well. What kind of guidance is out there for us on that topic? Yes. Yeah, so of course, all of these patients should be screened for um, sexual abuse in the setting of genital trauma. However, we should remember that accidents are common. Uh, one of the most common causes for uh, patients to come in for uh, vaginal bleeding in this age group is like straddle injuries or sports-related injuries that are 
common. So you should always screen them, but also remember that it might just be due to um, like an accident. And so when these patients come in, if it is due to some sort of trauma that was an accident related, uh, it's usually conservative management, which includes like analgesics, soothing soaks, um, ice packs. Um, One thing to remember is to never discharge a patient with genital trauma until they have um, urinated um, in the ED because you want to make sure they're not, there's no sort of urinal injury that you're missing. Oh, good. That's a very good tidbit as well to keep in mind. So making sure the patient's able to urinate and you're not missing some kind of urethral injury is, yes, very, very important. Thank you for mentioning that. All right. Well, thank you both for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate you authoring this article, uh, assisting our knowledge when it comes to abnormal uterine bleeding and taking the time to speak to us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you for having us. And thank you to you for listening this month to the September episode of Amplify. Before I sign off, I want to remind you to keep an eye on your email for the upcoming announcement regarding the EB Medicine mobile app. Also, the upcoming release of the maternal postpartum hemorrhage and severe hypertension article. And lastly, don't forget the special offer for the month. When you subscribe, if you use the code SB25, you will get a $25 Starbucks gift card to have some coffee on us. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Until next time, don't forget all the resources at ebmedicine.net and be safe.